to the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyse some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back to History for Atheists. My guest today is Associate Professor Ted McCormick. Ted is a specialist in intellectual history and the history of science at Concordia University in Canada. He examines the intersections between science, technology, economy and empire in the early modern era. Recently he's taken an interest in how the concept of the Enlightenment has been taken up as something of an ideological cause by some popular writers. In particular, he's critiqued the way the Enlightenment has been portrayed by Steven Pinker in his books, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and particularly his more recent work, Enlightenment Now, which Pinker has subtitled The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. As a historian of the Enlightenment, Ted has serious problems with the way Pinker, a non-historian, characterises the Enlightenment as a historical phenomenon and the rhetorical purposes to which he puts his version of its history. So please enjoy my conversation with Ted McCormick about the Enlightenment, Stephen Pinker and new atheist uses of history. So Ted McCormick, um, thank you very much for joining me all the way from Montreal and, uh, and thank you for joining us here on History for Atheists. We want to talk about the Enlightenment, and in particular, we want to talk about Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. And I've seen on Twitter that you've been uh, um, having great fun critiquing uh, Pinker, uh, which I think is something that, that needs to be done. Um, but I, I suppose I need to admit, first of all, that I haven't actually read Enlightenment Now. I have read his earlier book uh, that, that preceded it, which is The Better Angels of Our Nature, which... I thought was pretty terrible. And I'm getting the impression from reading what you and other critics of Enlightenment now have said, uh, that his grasp of history hasn't improved. Um, so maybe we can get onto that in some detail. But I, I think the, I should say the reason I haven't read his book is that, um, as we were just sort of saying before we started the recording, uh, I'm not a, an early modernist. I'm, I'm very much a medievalist. And so while people have asked me, what do you think of Enlightenment now? My problem has been I don't have the background to uh, to really be able to give it the kind of criticism that I would like to, yeah. whereas you do, Ted. So <laughs> that's our conversation today. Um, but but before we begin, maybe we could sort of just talk about what, what are we talking about when we're talking about the Enlightenment? And, and then maybe we can talk about what Stephen Pinker thinks he's talking about when he's talking about the Enlightenment. But if you had to define it in an elevator speech to someone, how would you do so? I'd have a very tough time doing so because one of the sort of characteristic features of Enlightenment historiography is a debate over the definition of the term. And there are you know, several sort of, I guess, families of interpretation of what the Enlightenment is. Um, and one big kind of division within those is whether it even makes sense to speak of one Enlightenment at all or whether there are multiple Enlightenments. And one of the reasons for this is that, well, on the one hand, a lot of discussions of the Enlightenment focus on ideas. Um, there's a very kind of fairly thin type of intellectual history which focuses on great texts produced by great authors in the 18th century. 
and the ideas in those texts and sort of logic of those ideas. Uh, the more historiography came to focus on the context in which those ideas were articulated, and the particular people putting them forward, and the you know specific arguments that they were addressing, the specific events they were concerned with, the processes they were involved with, the more local contexts or national contexts uh, seem to be relevant. So that you know the French Enlightenment looks very different uh, than the English Enlightenment, and that the, you know, both of them look very different from what was going on in German-speaking lands or in Russia. Yeah. So there's, depending on political context, uh, among other things, political and social context, the Enlightenment can look very, very different. And so for some people, Enlightenment history is just, you know, the intellectual history of the 18th century um, or the intellectual history of, of a certain canon of great 18th century thinkers, um, Voltaire, Diderot, Montesquieu, uh, people like that. Or if you're looking in England, Locke, Newton, um, people like that and their sort of uh, their self-conscious followers over the ensuing century or so. Um, but, you know, if, if you're concerned with social history or cultural history, then the Enlightenment looks very different. And often it's not so much of a matter of great figures and their great books as of, you know, things like new forms of, of public association, things like coffeehouse culture, news culture, um, new kinds of print, uh, you know, the rise of novels, uh, new, new art forms, that sort of stuff. stuff. So, you know, and, and those often both the freedom to produce those things and the, and the manner in which they were produced and the context and the audiences for which they were meant uh, varied quite a bit from one place to another. And their sort of overall significance and their relationship to this, you know, the sort of standard set of great ideas, uh, the alignment of older historiography like secularism or freedom or uh, democracy or whatever it might be. You know, those in some places, those relationships simply don't obtain so it's very hard to kind of talk about the Enlightenment as a whole, encompassing you know, everything that that one or another Enlightenment historian might mean by it in any yeah. kind of cohesive way. Gotcha. I, I mean, um, the interesting thing is, uh, I've, I've, in preparation for our conversation, I went back and had a look at people like Christopher Hitchens' book, God Is Not Great, mm -hmm. at uh, at uh, Sam Harris's stuff, at Dawkins, and to see if any of them actually gave a definition of this wow. thing they call the Enlightenment, and none of them do. They they refer to the Enlightenment uh, in right. capital letters, and they're constantly talking about uh, it, it being this this wonderful thing that that is kind of the pinnacle of our of of of, of uh, human understanding and 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 thinking, and how it must be protected at all costs, and how religion is. The great threat to it, amongst other things, there are right. there are there are others: superstition and uh, and and anti-progressive um, forces. And and certainly more recently, some of those figures have started to see uh, so-called woke culture, a word I hate, but yeah. as 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 one of those. And I think we can get back onto that when we're talking about Pinker. Sure. But they never define it. So they never actually talk about what this thing is. It's kind of an amorphous grab bag of science, the scientific revolution, democracy, um, uh, free thought, uh, skepticism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this thing, but but they never actually define what it is. Does does Pinker bother? Because the others don't. He does, uh, although you know his his. To the extent that he gives a definition, it, it, it betrays some of the same ambiguities and some even sort of greater ones than, than what I've just indicated. So he talks about it 
he does talk about it as an 18th century phenomenon, uh, as a historical, uh, as a historical thing, historical process or event. But at the same time, and sometimes almost in the same breath, he defines it in terms of these four things that are in his subtitle. So uh, reason, science, humanism, and progress, I think, are the four. Yeah. And you know, at, at one point in the book, it's, it's in the first chapter, I think, he sort of says, you know, the Enlightenment is interesting because that's when these ideas took shape. Um, but on the other hand, elsewhere in the book, these ideas are timeless. And so it's both a historical event and a timeless set of ideas. And one of the things that happens both in the book and more especially in his responses to criticisms of the book, criticisms from historians especially, is he'll sort of say, well, look, I'm just using enlightenment here as a rubric. This is a term he's used, I think, more than once. This is just a rubric for these ideas. And I could have called it secular humanism. I could have called it, you know, it's, at various points, it, it's identified with, I think, classical liberalism. Um, so it just is a sort of floating signifier that kind of means whatever... Steven Pinker happens to to want to defend at any given time. And because it's it kind of can be detached at will from the specific historical context, which he at, at various points thinks is important, um, there's really no ground on which to kind of base a criticism that he has to answer. Because if you say, look, you're getting the Enlightenment wrong, he'll just say, well, yeah, but I wasn't ever talking about the Enlightenment. So yeah. um in one of his defenses of, the, of his book, uh, I think it was I think it was the m more recent one published in Quillette, so in 2019, um, you know, he says, people who are criticizing me for not getting the Enlightenment, they're missing the point. Um, when I say Enlightenment, I'm not talking about 18th century people. I'm talking about Enlightenment as it's, as it's commonly used now. And I think he, he, I don't know if he quotes or he just refers to uh, speeches by Barack Obama and Emmanuel Macron, where it's just it's applying reason and science to enhancing human welfare or something like that. And I mean, at that point, there's no, you know, it's like nailing jelly to the wall, right? There's no real substance to what he's asserting that you can kind of pin him down on and say, okay, well, if we're talking about this, here are my problems with this, because yeah. what this is just shifts with the wind. Yeah. Um, and that's been very much his strategy in defending, you know, enlightenment, now and it's been a strategy that's that's been picked up on in, in some ways by uh, by his other defenders. The the your point there about you know the fact that he's kind of divorcing it a bit from the history, but he he keeps trying to use history, and this is something that I found particularly irritating about um, Better Angels, uh, Dawkins. Um, very not long after the book was Better Angels was released, said. You know, sneered on Twitter. Why did this book need to be written by a, a scientist? You know, implying that historians weren't up to the task. Well, and, and, the, and and the answer was basically because historians know what the fuck they're doing, and Pinker doesn't. Um, uh, Better Angels is one of the worst pieces of supposedly historically based uh, argument I've ever seen, uh, because he he, is, he just cherry picks whatever he can find to prop up a caricature of history. His stuff on the Middle Ages is just hilariously bad. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but, no, I mean, so I, I, is, is it that bad in, in, uh, in Enlightenment now? What, what, how does he use history and what, what are your major critiques of it? Okay, so taking it as, taking it as history, I mean, well, let me, let me preface that by saying as much as he denies that he's making historical claims, he is obviously making historical claims. Yeah. At, you know, at some points in the book, he says the, these ideas, you know, first took shape in this period. So that's why this period is interesting. 
He sometimes claims he's translating 18th century ideas into 21st century language. And, you know, he'll have, I think, on early on in the book, he has a quotation from Kant where he sort of gives Kant and then he quotes someone that he likes from, from now and says they're saying the same thing. Um, so there's, there's definitely a claim to historical interpretation there. There's a claim that these events meant a certain thing. And even in the least historical part of the book, in a sense, the sort of part, well, the least historically grounded part of the book where it's just graphs and this is progress. Um, I mean, the whole point of that is to show change over time. I mean, that's a fundamentally historical kind of claim. So as much as he wants to sort of walk away from, you know, he doesn't want to be on the hook for historical accuracy. He is making an avowedly historical argument. Um, but he's doing it in a way that he, some, he avoids having to give any kind of causal explanations. And I, I mean, so just to get back to saying, so it is a history. It's not just, it's not just a discussion of ideas. It, it's got yeah. a historical argument, though he sometimes denies that. Um, as a history, taking it in that spirit, there are a lot of problems with the claims made about the Enlightenment, the picture given of the Enlightenment. It's a very partial one. It's, you know, the sources that he favors are cherry-picked, and they're often interpreted in, in sort of questionable ways. And there are several reviews that historians wrote. Uh, I think in particular, uh, Peter Harrison for ABC wrote a very good one, a pretty early one, too. Um, David Bell uh, in The Nation, and Jessica Riskin, who's a, another historian of the Enlightenment, in the LA Review of Books. They all kind of picked apart the partiality and the kind of cherry-picked or you know tendentiously selective nature of his history of the Enlightenment. Um, they pointed out that you know although he identifies the Enlightenment with reason um, and sees you know people who are critical of reason, which he never defines, of course, would, you know, but people who are critical of reason are therefore by definition you know, being unreasonable. Um, you know, critiquing reason was, was literally <laughs> one of the major occupations of the of the sort of classic canon of Enlightenment thinkers. Yeah. So, you know, he he kind of very seriously misrepresents even the very thin kind of intellectual history that he's sort of engaging with. Um, to say nothing of all the sort of wider stuff about context and the sort of social setting of Enlightenment and the kind of you know the kind of infrastructure which supported it. Um, which he's not interested in the least, but which is a big part of Enlightenment historiography. That's all entirely missing. Um, but I'd say setting that aside, because you know, that's that kind of edges into criticizing him for not writing the book that someone else would have written. Um, I do think the cherry picking is an issue. The selectivity is an issue. The, the failure to define reason is an issue, um, both in the historical part of the book and in the polemical part of the book, part three. Um, but there are also sort of basic problems with the, with the structure of the argument. So kind of big picture is that the Enlightenment gave rise to this set of four great ideas, um, science, reason, humanism, progress. And in the wake of the Enlightenment, in part two of the book, as we have all the graphs showing us, things got better. Things in all sorts of measurable ways got better. And so the enlightenment is, is the cause of this or enlightenment is the cause of this. And that's where the ambiguity of, are we talking about ideas here? Or are we talking about events? It's not really clear. Yeah. Um, that ambiguity means that the claim is sort of meaningless unless you can anchor it in, in one, you know, one sense of enlightenment or another, then it, it's not even clear what you're saying, except that things got better. 
and enlightenment had happened before that. So there's no causal mechanism. And I think it's Peter Harrison in his review who basically said, you know, parts two and three are effectively just non sequiturs because you have this, you know, cartoon of the enlightenment and then you have graphs and then you have part three where we learn that, you know, academics hate progress. And that's, that's it. So there's no tracing of how you get from even taking, taking his account of enlightenment as let's, let's say it's correct. Let's say, you know, that in the 18th century, these four big ideas came to be or were articulated in some importantly new way. Um, we still have no line that gets us from that to the changes shown in the graphs in part two. Yeah. Instead, we just have an assertion that ideas cause change. And he said, yeah. I, mean, I forget exactly how he puts it, but, um, you know, he says that ideas really do, you know, they really do change things. And then he goes into talking about, you know, this is a fact about the brain. So I guess we're supposed to infer that people were exposed to these ideas and their brains changed. And that's why, you know, that's why people have longer life expectancy now or, yeah. you know, they have better medicine. So, so it, it does sound like there's a bit of a, like a classic um, post hoc ergo propter hoc uh, yeah. fallacy, but I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit with you, Ted. I mean, um, while I, I think he plays fast and loose with with the with the data, he 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 certainly some of the data he used in in uh, Better Angels was wasn't data at all. It was it was just gibberish. Mm. Some of the sources that he used were highly highly dubious. He also took um, uh, things like casualty uh, numbers given in ancient and medieval sources as though they were statistical facts, which is just hilariously stupid. But but playing devil's advocate, lots of people say to me when I talk about the idea of, of the Whig fallacy, the Whig version of history, that basically history is this uh, onward and upward progression in, in, in progress and civilization. They say, well, we do have a longer lifespan than someone who lived in the 15th century. We do have less disease than someone who lived in the second century. Things are better. I mean, we 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 do live longer and and better lives. So, isn't there a isn't there a point? To, isn't there there's some kind of kernel of truth to the idea of progress? And therefore, couldn't you say that something happens? Things happened in the 18th century that that led us there. I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. What would you say in response? Well, I mean, I think that you've kind of you've moved the goalpost a little bit there from a from a in a causal assertion about the Enlightenment to a didn't progress happen. And I mean, sure. yeah, assuming that his that his data uh, are correct, which as people have pointed out is actually a large assumption in many cases. But in any case, letting that slide, um, yeah, sure, they show change. But this is where it becomes important to you know, look at accounts of what has caused these specific changes. And one of the things that's frustrating about this book and, and this kind of genre of argument, I think, you know, often sort of people doing history without historians or without looking at historians, without reading what's already been done, is that you get the sense that like nobody has thought about this before. There's never been any attempt to discuss changes in the 19th to 20th centuries before it, you know, occurred to Steven Pinker to look at the Enlightenment or to look at some graphs. And mm. I mean, one of the one of the effects of doing what he does by saying, "Well, ideas ideas cause change. These were good ideas. Here's some good stuff that happened after, and so we have our story there." Yeah. Is that it completely erases all the 
you know, all the causal relationships that historians have studied, that have been written about. You know, democracy didn't happen because of ideas. It happened because of movements, right? Yeah. Civil rights happened because of movements. They happened because of collective movements and collective movements led by people who were not happy about the way things were, who did not think that things were as good as they could be or going to get better automatically. And I mean, the sort of irony of this is, on the one hand, it kind of ignores well-established historical explanations that we already have that are much tighter in nature and much better evidence, God knows, than his assertion that you know ideas cause changes in the brain. And that's what which, 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 which is pretty, yeah, which is, as you yeah. say, is, is, a, is a pretty vague and therefore tenuous linchpin. Yeah, but the other that his argument is, depends on. Yeah, so I mean, it does it it. it, it it creates this very weird sort of vacuous kind of history where, you know, cause just happens in this very, you know, in the brain and none of the actual ways in which that get, get you know, assuming that's even, assuming that's right, that still doesn't explain how, you know, people's changed brains actually produce visible social and political change. That's missing. And the, sort of in the historical part of the book, that's a huge problem. But in the polemical part of the book, it actually does a lot of work for him because the people that he attacks now as anti-enlightenment are, you know, it's a it's a wide swath of people. It includes, I think he identifies, you know, the populist right as one target. Um, he identifies intellectuals and the academic left as his much, much more favored target uh, in terms of, you know, the amount of space that he gives to attacking them. But, I mean, these are people who are not happy with the status quo, who are critical of the status quo, who think that effort is needed to change things. And so these become, you know, the, the very kind of people who produced the changes that he wants to credit to the Enlightenment are now demonized as being anti-Enlightenment because they're not happy. And I mean, or because they're not optimistic or because they think that things need to change. And that needs to happen through, you know, collective action, not through reading Better Angels or whatever. So, so that, was, that was okay in the 1770s and the 1790s, but, but it's not okay now because right. you're now upsetting me. As a, as a a privileged old white man. Well, the graph shows it's not necessary, right? Because the line is already going in the right direction. So right. that's not a good thing. So, well, okay, so we're agitating for the wrong reason. It, look, it's interesting that what you were saying there about him ignoring the real sort of social and, and, and economic drivers, uh, cultural drivers. It's just sort of this abstract. And I find this a lot with a lot of these sort of new age thinkers. Mm -hmm. they, they, they seem to think that, these ideas happen in some kind of vacuum, and then through yeah. some kind of magic, they have a, they have an effect on the world. I think a classic example is is slavery. Um, you know, the the emancipation movement was not driven by people sitting around in salons in Paris or people in coffee houses oh, in yeah. London. It was driven by Christians, which is really awkward for these guys. And uh, Tom Holland and I were talking about this in my conversation with him a couple of months ago and it, and he he really makes this point quite strongly in his book Dominion where you know the idea that the enlightenment led to the end of slavery completely ignores the fact that the people out there on the ground mm. doing the work weren't intellectuals and were largely not driven by reading Voltaire they were they were driven largely by reading the bible which just doesn't fit with what Pinker says. So what are your thoughts about Pinker's vision of how the Enlightenment possibly magically led to the end of slavery and what do you think actually happened historically? 
Well, I guess I mean there's there's two points to make that I would make. I should I should preface all this by saying that you know the the fundamental observation that he his account his kind of you know idealistic account of historical change ignores actual social movements, you know, sort of concrete agency embodied in particular people, uh, groups of people, often mostly non-elite people. I mean, that's that's a point David Bell makes really well in his review, so I can't, I can claim no credit for that insight myself. Um, but I'll say, look, on, if, you're, if you're talking about abolition as a European movement, as something that, you know, is, is something that white people in Europe took up, then yeah, that's that's a major problem with this kind of picture of a neatly secular enlightenment because it is you know often it's motivated by religiously inspired people and the quakers play a huge role in this and so yeah that doesn't fit at all with the idea that enlightenment did this um i mean it's also worth pointing out that enlightenment didn't do it anyway even chronologically i mean the you know the slave trade wasn't abolished until into the 19th century slavery itself wasn't abolished until the 1830s um, you know, in, in the British Empire. So, yeah, the, the the chronology, I mean, I guess you can say, well, it happened afterwards and people were pushing for it. So, okay. But I mean, the larger point here is that, you know, the people doing the work on the ground were also the enslaved. And it's very hard to make the case that they were inspired by Voltaire. They were probably inspired by by the fact that they were you know, enslaved. So <laughs> I think that, that was probably the key motivator there. And there's a long, you know, history of, uh, slave revolts and resistance, and there's also you know a fairly long history of religiously you know justified or articulated uh, criticism of slavery. There's a lot of a lot of different kind of pieces in the mix here, and a lot of different groups of people in the mix, and that's something that really gets just sort of drops from this account entirely. If it just becomes a matter of well, who was the first person to write a really good book? that argued this in philosophical terms we still accept today. I mean, that's not, you know, you can ask that and you'll, you may get an enlightened author as your answer, but that's a very different question from how did slavery actually end? Right? Mm. How did, you know, how did abolition actually become necessary or become, you know, inevitable or become, you know, some, how did it happen? And, you know, that again is you can, you can skip a lot of, a lot of complexity if you're just looking for a kind of clear, quotable articulation of the position that that you now believe in but explaining historical change is something you know quite a bit more complicated and in the case of slavery you know you can't do it for, as, as you were saying right this is this didn't happen in salons um, no. so yeah, and, the, and the and, and the people in the salons were would kind of maybe would be sitting around saying yes yes slavery is a terrible thing mm-hmm. or not because some enlightenment thinkers didn't Think it was yeah. necessarily a terrible thing, but then they would they would then go upstairs, and the servants downstairs would be doing the washing up. So it, it's not like they were really practicing what they were preaching a hell of a lot. Whereas the Quakers were. So it, it, it's kind of I, I, I just see this real sort of disjunction between what people like Pinker are claiming happened in history and and what happens on the ground. I think that yeah. point that you've made. Uh, is is a good one. The, the other one that I, I find interesting with these guys is they don't seem to have any kind of grasp of the, the importance of economics in history. Mm. And and I've often said, quoting my my uh, medieval history lecturer of many years ago, if you don't understand economics, you don't understand history. So he used to always preface uh, in his lectures anything to do with economics with, yes, I know this is boring, 
but unless you understand it, you're not going to get what was going on. Right. And that, that that really hit home with me. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day critiquing Jared Diamond's book, um, Guns, Germs and Steel, which I read when it came out and thought was really interesting and actually quite persuasive. I've since changed my mind. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I've changed my mind is that he doesn't pay any attention uh, at all to economics. Mm-hmm. You know, why were people going to the new world? It wasn't to 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 just for the for the for their health and and, and uh, for a holiday they were going to plunder the bloody place and and that that enormous driver that doesn't get get looked at at all does Pinker look at economics as a, as a driver is it all ideas is it all abstract thing in the, the sort of so part one is the is the more historical part of the book no it's 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 really it is about ideas and I mean he does say you know I guess political economy pops in. Um, here and there, I mean, for for example, at one point, I think he says that you know that the Enlightenment was saw the first the first rational analysis of wealth or something like that. And you know, it, I think the story there is more the work that rational is doing because it's really not clear what on earth that would mean um, <laughs> than any kind of claim about economy. But yeah, I mean, this is this is where you know his engagement with a very very kind of thin intellectual. History. It's kind of ironic that I'm accusing him of, of being of doing a very traditional like text-based intellectual history because he's actually not that concerned with the text either. But he's he is sort of tying these ideas to certain big names, um, in a very old-fashioned way. Yeah, great where, man, great man history. Yeah, where yeah. the the social basis on which these great men rest, you know, the the sources of their wealth, the the, the, the you know. The reason they're able to have leisure, the reason they're able to have salons, the reason they're able to have you know sugar and coffee and all the rest of it, um, that's not part of the story. And that's where I think you know a failure. Well, put it in a more positive way. Had he bothered to engage with a lot of you know the last fifty years of historiography on the Enlightenment, um, you know he might have been able to give a more interesting, certainly a, a more three dimensional account of what was going on, but you would not, you know, he would then not be able to escape talking about things like empire, talking about things like trade. Um, you know, you can't, it's, it's very weird to me to discuss abolition as an idea and never mention you know, why it was necessary and that, you know, the enlightenment coincides with the height of the slave trade and the height of the slave trade in these, you know, most enlightened countries. So, but, you know, if you, if you deal with the social and economic and imperial context in which all of these thinkers existed, you can't avoid that. Yeah. And it, it sort of strikes me that it's sounding very much from what you're saying, and thank you for saving me the effort of reading the book. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's like a lot of these, these guys who, who start with their conclusion and, it, and they have a polemical boat to row and and so then they go and find ways, cherry picking history to to prop that up. There was a, a book uh, that I've that I've written a review of on on the history for atheists site uh, by Nathan Blackstone, which is basically making this critique of the new atheist use of history generally. He calls them hunter gatherers. He says what they do is they start with the polemical uh, end, and then they go and hunt and gather through history or, or a version of history to yeah. find anything that props it up and pay no attention to anything that doesn't, pay no attention to context and pay yeah. very little to no attention to, as you say, actual historiographical 
um, scholarship, historiography generally. So, so another example is um, uh, a woman called Catherine Nixie, who wrote a book called The Darkening Age, which was a, a absolute throwback to Gibbon, um, which basically said Greeks and Romans, rational and wonderful, everything marvellous, beautiful temples, look at their art. Christianity came along, destroyed it, dark ages. And it's one of the most regressive pieces of, of she's a journalist, not a historian. But in order to do it, she has to tell half the story the whole time. Right. So she tells the story of the destruction of this temple, the Serapeum, and in her version, Christians just turn up and tear the temple down because it's got a library in it and they hate learning. Uh, what she doesn't tell you is the reason they turned up is that there was a gang of pagan terrorists holed up in the temple who were going out and kidnapping Christians and crucifying them. doesn't mention that. And I find that these guys do this all the time. It's just cherry-picking. We keep using that that term. Yeah. Can, can we get back to your point, though, about his, his, his polemical use of the pseudo-history? Because I'm really interested in your points there about how, how the sceptics that he held up in the, in the 18th, 19th, 18th and 19th century as being 18th century as being um, good, suddenly anyone who is against the status quo now is bad. That seems like an interesting paradox. Yeah, well, he has this remarkable sentence. Um, oh, where is it? It's something about if you, if you oppose, yeah, opposing reason, this is from page 351. I, I wrote it down because it did strike me. Opposing reason is by definition unreasonable. Um, I wonder if he would go along with, you know, opposing Antifa is by definition fascist. It, it you know, works the same way. Um, so, you know, once you've announced that the Enlightenment is reason and you haven't said anything more, then, yeah, anyone who thinks, well, there are limits to reason or there are areas where particular types of reason are, you know, can be dangerous if not checked by, you know, concern for values or whatever it might be, Um then you've kind of said, yeah, you know, anyone with a problem with this is is anti-reason, is anti-enlightenment. And I mean, his his the sort of overall response that he's had to his critics is to just say, well, they're anti-enlightenment. So what do you expect? Um, and yeah, and that this is this is rooted in you know a kind of slippery, very vague uh, definition of enlightenment and tethering it to these four also very vague ideas uh you know science reason progress um humanism yeah so yeah that's 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 how that works um i mean another sort of curious feature of his of his history that feeds into his polemic too is there's a real asymmetry in what needs to be explained so the whole point of the book is that you know we have these good things that we have now because of the enlightenment so enlightenment caused them they need to be explained Right, you know, progress needs an explanation. It has to be at least notionally. It needs a historical explanation. Anything bad, and he lists at various points: uh, racism, slavery, genocide, and autocracy. I think is another one, or despotism. Um, these, he says, were ubiquitous in pre-modern history. Racism is natural, right? This is rooted, you know, and this is where he kind of retreats, retreats into the brain, as it were, the same way he does with the force of ideas. Um, so they don't need any explanation, right? If you see a genocide, well, that's just nature. That's, that's how people are. And if you see a genocide happening before enlightenment, well, that's to be expected because enlightenment hadn't happened yet. If you see it happening after enlightenment, 
Well, you can't blame the Enlightenment for that, right? You should thank the Enlightenment that there weren't more genocide. So, <laughs> because those things don't need explanation, right? All the bad stuff is natural. Um, and so it has no, there's, there's no question mark to place around it. And so this, this is another way of ignoring you know, historical accounts, or not just ignoring, but kind of actively dismissing historical accounts that look at the role of you know, particular figures or particular ideas or particular you know, structures or processes that connect the Enlightenment to bad things. And yeah. you know, this, is, this is where he goes off on his you know, attacks on academics and readers of critical theory or Marxists or who, you know, whoever the, whatever the label is um, for being anti-Enlightenment because they buy into these things but we all know, really, that genocide is just the norm. Racism is just the norm. Slavery is ubiquitous in pre-modern history. So it's really unfair to try and pin that on the Enlightenment. And at one point, he even says, I think this is not in the book. I think it's in his, his defense of himself, one of his defenses of himself in Colette. He says uh, something like, you know, it makes no sense. It's, it's actually a post-hoke, right, uh, charge, charging people with post-hoke uh, by saying, look, it, it, yeah, it's true that there were new articulations of racism and imperialism and so forth in the later 19th century. But to blame that on the Enlightenment, you can't just blame everything that happened after the Enlightenment on the Enlightenment. But he's just written a whole book crediting everything good that happened after the Enlightenment to the Enlightenment. So why the hell not? I mean, yeah. you know, if that's how we're arguing, then yeah, you absolutely can do that. Yeah. So. <laughs> See, that's really interesting. Because I just wanted to home in on that point, on the, the fact that, that okay, you, you can play that game both ways. So if you look at some of the justifications of, uh, of genocide, um, I grew up in Tasmania and, and you read what the, what the, and I've studied the, the history of the, of the black war and the, the, you know, the virtual extermination of Tasmanian Aboriginal, certainly wiping out of that Tasmanian Aboriginal culture. And it was justified using the kinds of language that was used in the salons of the 18th century. It was all this stuff about, well, you know, they, they are a, a primitive people and they, they, they were probably dying out anyway. Look, you know, they only had rocks and sticks and stuff as technology. We have all this mm -hmm. other, other technology. Therefore, it's, it's purely justified. Uh, and and that, all, that is all 18th century philosophy writ large. So he can't play it both ways, can he? Well, I mean, you would think not, but it's amazing what you can do if you don't bother to read anything. <laughs> and I, it, this is, you know, this is a feature of, of treating these things as if they've never been examined, as if there are no accounts. And I mean, on the one hand, I think that's, you know, just, just simply ignoring existing scholarship is one way to go about it. Another way to go about it, and he, he does a little bit of both of these things, is to say, well, you know, because, as I've already said, racism and genocide are just the norm. Of course, you know, people are going to find, in any given period, people are going to try and justify them. And so there's nothing special about the particular justifications that anyone offers. And that even includes when these justifications also happen to be central arguments of the Enlightenment figures. Yeah. So somehow these arguments matter and are important when they're put to, you know, positive, progressive uses, and they cease to matter they're no longer of any historical interest when they're used to justify genocides or expropriation or conquest or whatever. Yeah. And it gets back to that point about it's just a very asymmetrical way of approaching history. Um, 
because that it's interesting that the justifications for genocide in Tasmania were pre-Darwinian. This is in the 1820s and 1830s. So Darwin, Darwin, Darwinian evolution hadn't come along. They were purely based on a kind of a Hobbesian view, but they're also based on a, a, a almost like a Linnaean classification, which was a very Enlightenment idea, the idea that, that you can put everything into categories and hierarchies and classify everything. And it was, well, we are here on the hierarchy and they are here, so it's okay for us to exterminate them. What else would you say are, are things that you could argue are bad things that, that came out of, of some of these Enlightenment ideas? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say when I teach the Enlightenment, I tend to sort of take, uh, uh, I guess it's, I guess you call it a kitchen sink approach. So, I mean, I do present students with, you know, arguments about, you know, positive things or, or you know, it's not necessarily so evaluative as that. But, you know, these are ways in which Enlightenment ideas, you know, visibly shape political movements or Enlightenment ideals are invoked in defense of this or that, you know, political change. And, you know, it could be something we consider positive uh, or not. Um, These are ways in which stage theories, you know, continued to shape the nascent social sciences. I think, I mean, one one thing that you just uh, touched on in, in your example that I would say perversely enough kind of helps explain Pinker is this idea that you can do history without doing history, right? That you can kind of establish a natural way that things develop. And this is something, you know, it's identified in, in, uh, in Adam Smith with the idea of conjectural history, um, which is a history and yet it's not a history, right? No actual historical case needs to follow exactly the steps of development that are laid out in the, in the sort of, you know, ideal, typical, conjectural history of how things happen. Um, and yet somehow this, this ideal, typical thing is almost more natural than the way things did, in fact, transpire. And I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, well, Pinker obviously, you know, read Dugald Stewart's Life of Adam Smith, and that's why he wrote a terrible book. Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I doubt he's read it. But um, I do think that this idea of there being a kind of way of just reasoning your way to an account of the past um, without needing to kind of touch the ground at any point, um, I do think in some ways you can, you, I don't know, I, I don't know if I want to say it. that's, you know, the enlightenment is why we do that. But I do think that's one thing that's present in enlightenment stage theory is a kind of evacuation of history. Yeah. And a, and a teleology, too, right, which very much does uh, structure Pinker's and many other accounts. Of this yeah. So I think that kind of thinking, for sure. And, and that kind of thinking actually permeates a lot of, um, you know, if I can refer to sort of, you know, the new atheist movement or, or kind of the, the thinking that I come across among, among atheists online is they, they've got this kind of abstract idea of the past and they don't need to actually found that on any kind of evidence it's just like, well, this is what it is. And, and if you hit them with counterexamples, they then just get confused and then usually just yell at you or block you. Um, and, that, that, and that's exactly yeah, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, welcome to Twitter. But that's exactly what you're talking about, this idea that, that history is just this thing that you can kind of know right. um, through, through some kind of abstract uh, abstraction rather than, as you and I know, from having, you know, slogged through evidence and sources and, and the and the and the historiography of a particular question, it, yeah. it is nothing like that. 
Um, the, 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 your, your point about him not engaging with the fact that it's not, he's not the first person who's come up with this, do you, think he, do you think he actually did any kind of reading of the history at all, even just to cherry pick, or, or has, he, has he really just sort of decided to do it all on his own? Oh, um, well, I don't think he did any, any serious reading of any or of very many, I guess I should hedge a bit, um, yeah. scholarly works. He does cite some – he cites works by historians, but most often they're kind of works that were written for a wide audience. They're popular surveys. They're not you know, journal articles. When he, he, if he cites a journal article from something other than a science field, it's probably because he wants to make fun of it. Um, I mean, he does, with, he does this with historians of science. Well, he does this with what he calls science studies, right? He has this, there's a paper about um, icebergs that he, this is like his go-to example of, of what, you know, the ridiculous things that, that feminists and historians. Oh, uh, I, I know the paper you're referring yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the one they always use. Yeah. yeah. No, so that's in the book. It's also, I think he did an interview or a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education where he also brings that up. This is, that's his example of, you know, how bad it's gotten in history of science. Um, so he doesn't really do the legwork of reading scholarly monographs on the Enlightenment. He cites, I think, uh, Lynn Hunt's book, Inventing Human Rights. He cites David Wooten on the history of science, but I think it's um, the invention of science that he cites. Uh, and it, there, there's a sort of a few other, broadly speaking, popular trade book histories, kind of historical narratives of enlightenment that he mentions. And yeah. occasionally there's a, a specific citation, but he's awfully loose about that. Um, and I mean, some of the time, I'm, I don't know if he's even read these or if this is a you know, research assistant supplying <laughs> references or what. What I can tell you, though, I, I'm pretty sure that you know, a research assistant will take the blame um, for, you know, some of the, some of the more creative quotations um, that appear, at least in the polemical part of the book. I mean, it should be said that it's, it's in academic terms, it's extraordinarily sloppy work. Yeah. I've seen some of the examples that you've highlighted on Twitter of that, where he's been yeah. pretty creative in crafting what looks like a quote, but actually isn't, which uh, right. uh, is another, Another kind of alarm bell for me of, oh, yeah. uh, when, when it comes for a bad book and the stuff that you were just talking about, how how he kind of gestures towards real scholarship, but on the whole leans on trade books by non-specialists. Again, this is this is absolutely typical of of these guys. You know, it's absolutely typical of people like Hitchens and, and Dawkins and so on. They They aren't interested in history, really. They're interested oh, no, in their argument. They, they have no, there's no curiosity about what actually happened. Can I work out what happened first, which is what you and I do, and then and then extrapolate from that. They start with the endpoint, and as I've said before, kind of work their work their way back, which yeah. is why this stuff is so bad um, and frustrating. Yeah, frustrating for for, for yeah. people like I us. Mean, it's also just sort of it's it's kind of I mean, I don't know if in this particular case this this makes sense, but I mean in general, I think it's a missed opportunity because these are, I mean. It would be hard to deny that the Enlightenment has had massive historical significance. I think, you know, wider public discussion of it is a good thing. Um, it's also a very interesting historical phenomenon, very complex, an awful lot of interesting things going on. And, you know, one would like to think that a public intellectual writing a book on Enlightenment that's going to have millions of readers 
would exploit that interest, would exploit that complexity to, you know, do something towards educating the public. But instead you get, you know, the, the thinnest, most dull, as well as being inaccurate account of this very complex thing. And yeah, it does, I think, on his part, betray a real lack of curiosity because, I mean, his interest isn't historical at all. And I guess what's unusual about Pinker is that he's frank about that. You know, when, when pressed, he will say, look, I don't care about the 18th century. <laughs> And, uh, that's sort of refreshing. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's different. Um, it's certainly but, honest. Yeah. But his defenders won't let that go because mm. I think, you know, more frankly than he does at some time, I think they see that, you know, there's, there's a particular historical narrative here that is being posited as absolutely essential to maintaining, you know, the status quo in the present, which we think is good because we think it's trending in the right direction. And so anything that threatens that is absolutely to be dismissed. And it's, you know, unfortunately, that's most of professional history because you can't really look at the sources and look at the historiography and look at the period in any depth and come away with an account that looks like this. Gotcha. A um, couple of final questions then, Ted. Uh, first one is uh, slightly facetious, but... If Stephen Pinker was one of your students and you had to give his book a, a grade out of out of uh, 100 for its history, mm. what do you think you would be giving young young Stephen? Oh Lord! I mean, it's it, there is no history there. <laughs> Zero. No, well, let me. I mean, let me put it this way: if we think that historical claims need to be substantiated, and if we think mm. that terms need to be defined. Mm. Uh, it does neither of those things. So, right. yeah. He fails. He fails. Okay, bad luck, young Peter, Stephen. Um, and given that that I, I do like to to help my uh, my, my listeners and, and readers of my blog to, to understand history better, if you were to recommend some some works that, that people could read that would give them a good understanding or a beginning of, of an understanding of of what we're talking about with the Enlightenment. Is there anything that springs to mind? Oh, well, I think, you know, because it's such a big topic, there, there are a few different ways to go on something like this. I mean, if you want a big, like big picture kind of overview of the Enlightenment, um, it's, there aren't a whole ton of recent ones uh, that I think are necessarily going to get into the complexities as much as, you know, a history teacher or professor might like. Yeah. Um, the one that I tend to use in my classes is uh, Dorinda Utrum's The Enlightenment, which is a textbook, and it's, it's, it's a bit textbooky, but it's short. Um, and it does have a nice range of different, of different uh, chapters that covers. If you're looking for you know, a very positive um, assessment of the Enlightenment that will probably be congenial to some of the, of, of the audience that Pinker might be trying to attract, but you know, people who care a little bit about the history... Um, Margaret Jacobs' Secular Enlightenment is, you know, it has a sort of, it has a very, well, as this title suggests, you know, a view of the Enlightenment as a, as a secularizing moment. But she knows the period, you know, very, very well. She knows sources inside and out. It's very readable. Um, it's very accessible. But I think for my part, I, I tend to prefer to get into these big complex periods through much more specific studies. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, a particular a particular subject, a particular topic, a biography. Um, one of the more recent biographies I read was uh, it's not it's 
relatively, it's not, a, it wasn't published in the last few years, but it's relatively recent. It's uh, Judith Zinser's uh, Life of uh, Emily du Chatelet. That's a good one. Um, it's in Penguin. It's, you know, very affordable, very accessible, but you get in, you get a sense of both the individuals, a little bit about the networks, the role of institutions, some of the scientific debates that were going on, but through the access of one person. So you kind of, it's, you know, it's nicely grounded that way. So I'd say, you know, come, come into it through something like that. I'd also say, I mean, Jessica Riskin's work, she, she wrote the uh, LA review of books, uh, review of Pinker that I uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah. I think she's, she's, uh, does a lot of really, really good work. And so I just sort of blanket, uh, recommend looking at, at some of her stuff as a sort of, particularly for those interested in history of science. Yeah. Uh, and, and I read, I read her critique, um, and, and, and several of the other ones that you've mentioned as well. It was, it was good stuff. What, what I will do, Ted, is uh, we'll make sure that we put, um, some, some references to those books and also to some of those articles in, sure. uh, in the description of, uh, of this episode. Sure, I could come um, up with a with a more sort of structured reading list if there's a like a you know four or five. Put you on the I put you on the spot there, mate. Yeah. It's like when people ask me, you know, what's the, what's one book I should read on the Middle Ages? It's like, <laughs> Good luck. Mate, it, it's a hundred, it's a thousand years of history. Which bit? You know? Yeah, no, same, same here. Same yeah, here. to be, I realised it was a difficult question, possibly an even more difficult um, question, uh, Ted. We we have got a bit of a tradition here on History for Atheists of inviting our guests to sing. Um, now you can decline, I may. Uh, but uh, you may. That's fair enough. But it began when Seb Falk mentioned that he was a sailor and he, and he liked sea shanties, so he then sang a sea shanty for us. Tom Hollands and I were talking about his love of uh, 1980s British new romantic pop groups, so he sang a bit of Vienna by Ultravox. I didn't invite Tony Christie to sing because he's a, <laughs> a fan of the Grateful Dead. And I didn't want to inflict that on anyone. Oh, see, yeah. Love I, you, I, Tony. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm, you can I'm decline, gonna, Ted. Yeah, you I'm going to plead the, the Tony exception, I think. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Two traditions. That's, that's fine. Yeah, you, you take the other path. It's uh, yeah. okay. Ted, do appreciate you uh, um, taking the time. Uh, and, and thank you very much. I think that's, that's a great encapsulation. And as I said, you've saved us all the effort of reading what is a very, very long book. Um, there are much better books to read. So I will take you up on the offer of a reading list. Uh, we'll, we'll get that yeah, from sure. you. And uh, and um, maybe if Pinker brings out another book, we might get you back. Okay. I'll have to read it first. Though. All right. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun. No problem. Tim McCormick, thank you very much. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog for an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day. Bye.